Welcome to the Grateful Historians podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. I am Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history, told in the great tradition of Southern oral storytelling. Chance, I'd like to mention for just a few minutes with uh, this being, first of all, New Year's Day, Happy New Year to you and your family. I want to mention something right off the bat that doesn't have anything to do with history, but does have to mention maybe our region and our local area. We've had a lot of people in our area lately who have been suffering from a variety of different things going on in their lives, and I don't want to get into their individual um, cases or or stories and and say much about that except to say that um, we're thinking about people who are in our community. Some of them are struggling. Some of them have family issues going on, and we just want you to know that um, that we care about you, and we understand some of those things that are happening, and uh, want you to know that, that we're thinking about you during this time. Happy New Year to you and the family. How are things going? Thank you. Everything's going really good. Uh, Happy New Year and Merry Christmas to y'all. I um, hope y'all had a great uh, break with your family. And like you said, it's it's been a tough time for a lot of people in our communities. And I know just the the strength of this community that we have and sort of in the immediate area, it's just amazing. So I'm, I'm glad to see the strength that kind of shows the resilience that everybody has in this area. But um, it is it is tough on a lot of people uh, during this time. But we had a great break. We're ready to get back into a sor- sort of sense of schedule. Um, we've just kind of been all over the place lately, but ready to get back into some sort of routine. As far as our uh, topic goes today for our podcast, I know a lot of people have been really excited about this, but uh, different towns and communities in uh, Webster County and some in Choctaw County and surrounding areas, a lot of people are really interested in learning how these towns and communities got their names um, and sort of where those origins or, or where you know where they originated from, the, the backstories behind some of these communities. So that's what we're going to start today. I think this will probably be a multi-part series because there are a good many communities and towns in the region. But before we get into the individual stories and backstories of these towns, why is it important to understand our locations and their stories, how they got their names? Um, because I know for me, and I'm sure for several others, it's just interesting uh, to have these little side bits of information and history uh, to, to see where we grew up in and, and, and where we grew up from and where we're from, all of that information. But other than that, you know, what do you think is uh, the importance of understanding the history of these locations? Well, I I don't want to overemphasize the point, but I do think it's important. Um, You know, if if someone were to ask me today, why is it important that if I'm from Matheston that I know who Mr. Mathis was or when it started or why it started uh, or a host of other questions that could be asked from a variety of different locations around, say, our our counties and anywhere around the state of Mississippi for that matter. I think it plays into a broader point that's it's sort of a sociological point, I think, that's going on in the world. You, you're a bigger reader than I am, and you've, you've read a lot of things. Um, in the post-World War II era, there was a lot of literature that came out, even even post-World War One. I. I think war causes that. You know, It causes that sense of writers having that sense of um, isolation or frustration or you know things aren't going to get better type of thing. You see all this literature isolation, social isolation. 
I'm thinking particularly books like Catcher in the Rye, you know, that type of thing. Uh, self, self-alienation, self people who, aren't underst- who don't understand themselves and, and where they're from and where they're going. Now, do I think knowing what your local town is or its background is going to solve that problem? No, I don't. But in, in the grand scheme of things, I, I read an interesting book several years ago. The title of it was Bowling Alone, and you may be familiar with it, but it's a book basically about how in big cities there used to be these large bowling leagues for people. And now when you go to a bowling center, people are bowling by themselves. Now, we are surrounded by a tremendous amount more technology today than we were 15, 20 years ago, but it seems as if we're isolated in using it. Uh, That in one sense, yes, it's easier to connect and it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I used the Internet to write the book I did on Matheson with a lot of the stories. Uh, for instance, Mr. Mathis, the founder of the town, I was able to connect with a gentleman in Minnesota who had his photograph. Without the Internet, I'm not able to do that. So technology allowed me to do that. But in another sense, in another real sense, I think, it's possible for people to sit in the same house stare down at a device, and, and lose the sense of social interaction that, that maybe they once had. Uh, I know personally growing up, and I think I've said this before, my grandfather, Jim Wills, who lived in Choctaw County, uh, was a library of local history, and he told me stories of things that happened to him when he grew up. And, um, you know, surviving the, the flu of 1918, 1919, um, the Great Depression and, and the commodities that were handed out in Ackerman and places like that, walking to political rallies across the county to listen to those type things and, and hearing famous politicians who came here from faraway locations. President Taft coming to Ackerman in the early 1900s. You know, just things like that that, that, that happened over the years. Now, again, getting back to the original point about why does it matter? Well, I think people who understand their communities and understand have a sort of a basic understanding of where they came from aren't as apt to lose that sense of community and have that sense of social isolation that other people do. I also think, and this is maybe a crude point, but I'm going to say it anyway, I also don't think somebody who knows where they're from and is proud of it throws trash out on the highway when they're riding up and down the road or is constantly negative about the place where they live and say bad things about it all the time. Now, healthy criticism has its place, don't get me wrong. But I think it creates in everyone, if we're willing to do it, I think it creates in us this sense of understanding of this is a community, a society. It's part of a quilt, if you will, of interrelated stories and events that have an impact not only on a long time ago, but can impact our lives today if we just listen and learn some of those things. You, you may know or be familiar with Bill Dunlap. Uh, Bill's a nationally known artist. He ha- maintains a home here in Matheson. I think in a lot of people, you and I have this kind of sense, I think. In a lot of people, we have this sort of built-in desire to sort of maintain or acknowledge and try to make sense of who we are. Now, for me, it's writing about Matheson or talking about these stories from a long time ago. For somebody like Bill Dunlap, who is infinitely more talented than I am, it's painting that landscape 
and including the Starnes house in Matheston in that photograph, in that painting, are making that sculpture. And what he's doing in a real sense is connecting the past with his sense of who he is and, and, and the people who are around him. And, and, and that's, you know, you know, I sort of think what maybe the point is, if we understand where we come from and try to have a real sense of who that was and who those people were and what they did and why they did it, then maybe we instill a little less of that social isolationism and maybe, just maybe, we instill a little bit of community pride. I completely agree. I think, um, and I'm going to quote William Faulkner here, and I know you know this quote, but to understand the world, you must first understand a place like Mississippi. And I think um, that's an incredible quote from this Mississippi author. But in addition to that, taking another approach and another look at that, uh, to understand where you're from first, basically, to, to better understand the world around us that we live in. I, I think it's very important, like you were saying. Now, to kick us off, um, rather than go through a specific town or community just quite yet, we need to really understand the county line breakdown. Um, because a lot of people might be surprised that Choctaw County and the lines that are drawn uh, today were very different from what they were in the past when they were first drawn. So. I want us to discuss the original Choctaw County uh, and those those original lines that were drawn. How big was this county, and why was it ultimately split? Okay, so I think to understand uh, Choctaw County, we got to step back just a little bit and discuss migration patterns in Mississippi in general. Of course, as everybody knows, the United States started on the East Coast, and it's it's been a constant journey westward. Uh, I don't think that's a great surprise to anybody who's listening. So it would be, it would seem intuitive to say then that Mississippi maybe was founded with the easternmost part of it first, and then moving westward toward the Mississippi River. But as we know, that's not the case. Mississippi's settlement pattern really begins on the coast, down in the Natchez area, and and that location. And it works its way upward in a series of treaties that were signed with the Indians. Uh, By the time that white settlers came to Mississippi, there were basically three main Indian tribes left. That was the Natchez Indians in sort of the lower third. That was the Choctaw Indians in the middle region. And the Chickasaw Indians in the northernmost region. So over a course of time, these Indians were either died out uh, killed, in the case of the French and the Natchez, killed out, or migrated further west, in the case of the Choctaws and the Chickasaws. So the area where we live now, which we might define as, as Choctaw County or Webster County, was originally, most of it, the land of the Choctaw Indians. Now, that's not the case once you get up above Dancy, because there's this creek up above in the Dancy area called Lion Creek, there's a reason that's called Lion Creek. It wasn't named by, by us. It was the dividing line between the Choctaw and the Chickasaw Indians, uh, a natural boundary, if you will, that, that they abided by. So everything above that belonged to the Chickasaws. The middle portion of Mississippi, from where Dancy is today on down to um, about the middle third or so, was the Choctaws. Now, on September the 27th, 1830, the Choctaw Indians signed a treaty known as the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. Uh, it's south of Macon was 
where this was, uh, this creek is and where it was signed. But that meant that those Indians were going to move to what is now Oklahoma. At that time, it was called Indian Territory. And that meant that that area was now open for settlement. So it began being split up into various regions. And one of those political units was called Choctaw County in honor of those Indians. And it was formed on December the 23rd, 1833. Incidentally, it was the largest county in Mississippi in terms of square miles, 1,080 square miles which was a huge county. And I can already see Chance when I'm, when I'm thinking about it, knowing what terrible road conditions were like at the time, how difficult it would have been to maintain law and order, how difficult it would have been to maintain any type of political organization or communication between people. Now, these people were very isolated apart from each other. Um, so that's going to cause some problems. Now, why was it broken up? Why don't those of us who live in Matheston or in Cumberland or Mantia, that area, why do we not live in Choctaw County today if we once would have? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. Number one is what I just mentioned, the geography. Very simply, too big for a number of small number of people to organize and maintain, much less keep law and order. And by the way, the first sheriff of Choctaw County took the job went to the treasury, took the funds out of it, and skipped town. And they never found him again. So that gives you some indication of you know kind of how wild the area was. Uh, so geography played a big part in why it split up. But here's another reason. Politics plays into it. <laughs> because it, doesn't, doesn't, it plays into everything, I think. Think at the end of the Civil War, because we've gone from the 1830s to the 1860s. In the 1860s, late 1860s, the North is controlling the South politically. The North has troops stationed in all of these southern states, and they are maintaining Reconstruction government at literally the point of a gun. So Mississippi's in that boat. The thought was, and this makes a lot of sense politically, it would be much easier to control these people, these Southerners, if we split this state up into smaller counties and we put reconstruction people in power who felt like we did taking the perspective of the north if we put um, sympathetic people to the northern cause in positions of power these counties were broken up and choctaw county becomes not webster county but the name became sumner county so choctaw county gets split sumner county is formed on april 6 1874 Got a problem already for the local people because Charles Sumner was a senator from Massachusetts who was an abolitionist, a very outspoken northerner. And do you think the average person who lived in Choctaw County, Mississippi, or Webster County is going to like the name Sumner? They don't like it. They're not going to like that. Well, why did it go from Sumner to something else? Well, there's a presidential election in the year 1876. That election is between two candidates. Democrat by the name of Samuel J. Tilden, and a Republican by the name of Rutherford B. Hayes. It's going to be a close, contentious election. At the end of the day, we really didn't know who won certain states because there was discussion of voter fraud and miscounting of votes and a variety of other things that supposedly took place. And what do the politicians do? They go to a back room somewhere, 
the senators, and they say, okay, South, you want these troops out of here. You don't want to be controlled by Union troops any longer. North, you want Rutherford B. Hayes to be president. Can't we compromise and get both of those things to happen? So the South agrees to say that Republican Rutherford B. Hayes would be president on the belief or on the promise that the federal troops be removed from southern states. Well, just as soon as they were removed, and after that political, by the way, Rutherford B. Hayes was called Rutherford by a lot of people because they thought that he won the election illegally, but why was the name changed from Sumner to Webster? The name was changed because they didn't like it already, and just as soon as they got some political power for themselves, they held a vote and said, let's get rid of that name Sumner, which we don't find very palatable, and they named it Webster County. And that was done on January 30th, 1882, we became Webster County. It's an interesting story about how this county was formed, the place where we live, Webster County. And I bet a lot of our listeners may not have known that we were once part of uh, Choctaw County. It is very interesting, and I really think some of our other is- listeners might want to know, because I'm interested too, just to, I'm just out of curiosity, uh, why specifically is the name Webster chosen? Um, what What's the significance and story behind that? Well, um Again, in the era that we're in, I don't think they wanted to totally go 100% away from the direction of the name that they had, even though, because remember, we talked about this in one of our earlier podcasts, there was some dissent, some political dissent in what's now Webster County that were not in favor of secession or in favor of the Civil War. So how about a sort of a compromise name, Daniel Webster, who was a pre-Civil War I don't want to call him a total unifier, but certainly a man who tried to work out various compromises to try to hold the United States together and really wanted to keep the Union intact. So Webster County it was after nationwide known politician Daniel Webster. Okay, so with our uh, current two counties, Choctaw and Webster County, that we're really focusing in on these uh, next couple of podcasts, to start off on these towns and communities, uh, we're going to begin with a few of our local communities. And your aunt, Miss Polly Gilbert and Sarah Pittman, uh, were inquiring about the name of Tom Nolan and the community of Tom Nolan, how that came about. Could you shed some light and backstory on that community? Okay, so Tom Nolan, an unincorporated community now, it was incorporated at one time, uh, sort of in the southwestern area of Webster County. Tom Nolan comes into existence in the year 1887. And I think if you notice, Chance, um, some of the names of these towns and where they started and when they started, particularly on the when, a lot of these communities you see around 1885 to 1890. And then you're going to see a gap and you're going to see more communities named around 1903 to about 1908. And why? Well, you can answer it real simply. Transportation and something called a railroad. Because there were two railroads that came through Webster County. The first one came through in 1889. It was called the Georgia Pacific Railroad at the time. It was later known as the Southern Railway, 
But what people around here would remember it as particularly was the CNG or the Columbus and Greenville Railroad that operated for so long, um, operated into uh, about the year 2000, I believe, is about the time that it shut down. So that railroad comes through. It's the first railroad to come through Webster County, and it sort of follows the big black. Um, modern Highway 82 takes a lot of its direction from the railroad path. So in that area is the place we're, we're talking about that becomes Tom Nolan. Uh, if you go to Tom Nolan today and you go by north of Tom Nolan to Tom Nolan Baptist Church and go out into the country, you're going to see the remnants of a town. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't even see it. But there's a cemetery out there called New Greensboro Cemetery. And then out in the woods, a little bit further north and east of there, is Old Greensboro Cemetery. And that was the old original county seat of the original Choctaw County. Uh, it's several miles north of Tom Nolan and just slightly to the east. Um, but Tom Nolan, about 1887, 1888, is going to take people away from Greensboro, who had lived in Greensboro, because there's going to be a depot in Tom Nolan. Um, in the late 1800s, Tom Nolan's going to have several stores. There were two churches. There was a livery stable, there was a post office, there was a drugstore, a lumber mill. So it's a thriving community in the late 1800s. Well, now, why the name Tom Nolan? Which seems like an unusual name for naming a place. Tom Nolan. Well, there were five Nolan brothers who lived in that community. A man by the name of Edward P. Nolan, his brother Jim Tom Nolan, Clarence Nolan, John Nolan, and Lee Nolan. Jim Tom owned the store. And because it was so close to the railroad, these railroads executives were going through and had to were tasked with naming their depot. Okay, what are we gonna name this depot spot? It's gotta be named something. Well, there's a store here owned by a man named Jim Tom Nolan, and the railroad people had been overheard saying, That's near Tom Nolan's. That's near Tom Nolan's store. Well, why not name the depot Tom Nolan? So that's the reason that the depot was named what it was named. And then obviously if the depot is named that, the town is going to be named that. So the post office becomes Tom Nolan, all one word. Interestingly enough, I think it's a real interesting point. Lee Nolan, the brother of Tom Nolan, had a very interesting demise. Lee Nolan was walking one night in the streets of Winona, and this was long before they had uh, streetlights. He was walking down the street middle of Winona, and he encountered a man in the darkness, and the man said to Lee Nolan, who goes there? And it kind of frightened Lee Nolan just a little bit. So thinking quickly, he said the name of the most dangerous man in the area that he could think of, thinking this is going to frighten away whoever this is talking to me. Now, the gentleman that he encountered, it so happened, had a running feud with this tough guy that Jim Nolan mentioned, so this man, also being very frightened, pulled out a handgun and shot Lee Nolan and killed him on the streets of Winona. That is one of the Nolan brothers. All five, the other four of the five brothers, wound up moving away to various other locations. But the name Tom Nolan remains with us today. And that's sort of the background of why this place is called Tom Nolan and how it got started. I've got more to say about that, but before I do, I would like to mention Austin McGinnis of McGinnis Dirt Services. He is the sponsor of our podcast. 
Uh, if you need a pond built or levee repaired or land clearing, a house pad, a road pushed, bush hogging done, if you need any of those things for general land improvements, contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750. Austin McGinnis, and it will you will see an increase in your property value from those type things. Austin does a good job. Former student of mine, I highly recommend him. Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750 for all of your land improvement needs. McGinnis Dirt Services. Chance, we always shout out to somebody as well. I'd like to shout out two former students today. Anna Johnson Nichols, who more or less threatened me if I didn't say something about her on this podcast. That's the way I took it anyway. That's the story I'm going with. No, she didn't do that, but she did ask for that, and I'm happy to do so because she always listens. And her sister, Claire Johnson Krim, who listened faithfully to our podcast chants, and we are grateful for those people who do. Let's go back to that story about Tom Nolan very briefly. The people may be interested to hear that in the early 1900s, and this is specifically about Tom Nolan, in the early 1900s, there was an attempt by local farmers to organize in a union, which they called the Farmers Union Warehouses. So, and you can imagine this. You know, Think about this. The railroad comes through, and you're wanting to ship your goods by rail. Obviously, you could get a better rate for selling that good or for shipping that good. If you collectively put it together, you could get a better rate for a thousand bushels than you could five bushels. So the attempt was made to um, collectively put their efforts together and to somewhat unionize. Now, this was a volunteer effort. Here in Matheston, where we're doing this podcast, uh, there was a farmer's union warehouse. It held hundreds of bales of cotton. One of the cries by the farmers in that era was, accept nothing, nothing less than 15 cents per pound. We will not accept less than 15 cents per pound. Well, what about that farmer who lives out in the country out there who doesn't want to belong to a union, doesn't want to join, but takes his money to the railroad depot and says, ship my cotton and get what you can for it. Well, this didn't start in Mississippi, but in various places throughout the South, we started hearing about a group called Night Riders. And Night Riders would be a group of men who belonged to the farmer's union who would dress up cover themselves and their faces, and this sounds eerily like another group that I could think of, and go intimidate these farmers and tell them, look, you don't sell for less than 15 cents because it's going to hurt all of us. Well, it's one thing to say it, but then they started going out into the farmers' homes and they started destroying crops. They started burning down um, gins in various towns. They started messing with people's cotton wagons and setting them on fire and burning their crops threatening people's lives. So what they would do is they would come into a community and say, post a sign that said, uh, the night riders are here. Don't sell your cotton for less than 15 cents. And it was said that during this time, about 1908, that a sign was posted on the cotton gin outside Tom Nolan. And it said, the night riders have found you. Do not sell your cotton for less than that. Now, by about the mid-19-teens, this all goes away and the farmers' union goes away. In some ways, it was kind of unfortunate for the farmers um, because it goes back to them not getting as much for their crops. But I just think that's an interesting story about what happened. you know. And, and, and so many of these stories connect us to various things that are happening nationally. 
who would have thought Tom Nolan, of all places in the world, would be attached to something that happened in Kentucky and Arkansas and places like that. But uh, anyway, that's a little bit about the introduction about Tom Nolan and how its name came to be. That is very interesting. Uh, moving on to our next community, uh, Greg Fondren requested that uh, you try to give a little bit of information on the community of Dido, which I'm not very familiar with myself. So um, I'm, I'm personally very interested in knowing a little bit more about how this town or community rather got its name and the, some of the backstory to it as well. Dido is, or was rather, a community in eastern Choctaw County, north of Ackerman. Uh, best way I can describe it is if you're near Reform in Choctaw County and you go back east, um, go back in that direction and slightly south, that's where Dido, the location of Dido, would have been. Well, that's an unusual name, Dido. Well, why would someone name a community that? Well, you know, we talk about these people sometimes as not being very educated, but I'll tell you what they knew. They knew mythology, and I didn't know a lot about Dido, who the person was, but Dido in ancient mythology was supposedly the sister of a man named Pygmalion. Now, this is where the story goes from how much of this is true in mythology. You know, there's always some element of some truth in mythology, but how much of it actually happened, we don't know. But here's the story. Dido was a queen, and she moved to northern Africa and became the founder of a city-state called Carthage. And chance, this kind of reminds me of the story of how Rome was founded with the two brothers, Romulus and Remus, you know, supposedly uh, suckled by a she-wolf when they were kids out in the woods, and then they went on to found the city of Rome. Well, archaeology tells us that the Etruscans were there before the Romans, so that story is likely not true. Um, but there was a city-state of Carthage. Was Dido an actual woman who lived there? I don't know, and I think the likelihood is that her founding Carthage is probably a myth. However, there was a Carthage, and we know Carthage from the three Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage in ancient history. There's this famous saying that Cato, a senator from Rome, would give every one of his speeches when he stood up in the Roman Senate, and he would stand up and say, regardless of what he was talking about, he may be talking about taxes, or he may be talking about improvements to the community or whatever, but he always ended his speech with this phrase, Carthago delinde est, which in Latin means Carthage must be destroyed. And they fought three wars, and I'm not talking about the kind of wars that we fight today where you sign a piece of paper and everybody kind of stops, the third Punic War between Rome and Carthage, Rome sacked Carthage and literally went there with salt in wagons and salted the ground, burrowed it into the ground so that nothing could grow there. They totally destroyed Carthage. Um, we're talking rural Choctaw County in the 1830s and 1840s, and now we're talking about the third Punic War back in ancient times. So, you know, things kind of have a way of... Uh, you know, getting into getting into world history sometimes, we're not careful. So that's the story of Dido and who Dido was. That's why the town was named that. Living in Dido in the 1830s and 1840s was a man by the name of Herod Fondren who owned a tan yard and a store. The Fondren brothers who lived there were named Herod, Hampton, Hardy, Howard, Hiram, and Hester. 
those were the brothers, Fondren brothers of Dido, who moved on to other locations. And I have been told, even though I don't know this, I'm sure some of the Fondren family could tell me this, uh, were responsible for the Fondren district in Jackson being formed and named after one of those brothers. I've heard that at least. I can't say that with 100% certainty, but I have heard that. There is a church in the Dido community. If you go there today, it's still there. Huge cemetery. It's called Spring Hill Church and Cemetery. Um, In the summer of 1855, there was an epidemic of dysentery that lasted for a series of weeks in the community. If you know anything about dysentery, one, it is a horrible way to die. Um, Civil War soldiers suffered from dysentery not being able to keep food or water down on their stomachs. Um, and it's just that people waste away, um, possibly from bad water. And I'm not sure, but, um, it was a really bad epidemic that hit that area and it wiped out large portion of Dido in a couple weeks period. You can go to the Spring Hill church cemetery and find the graves of people who died in the summer of 1855 So they were burying at least one person every day, and some days they were burying two um, from that epidemic. Interesting story that goes along with that. There was a young man there who was set to get married, and he was suffering from the dysentery. And the doctor came to him, and chance, oddly enough, they're really struggling with, you know, that dysentery which causes diarrhea and causes you know you lose all of your fluids and one of the things the doctors told them was do not give them any water don't give them water give them astringents keep keep water off their stomach and they were dehydrated terribly so um this boy who was about to be soon to be married but realized he's about to die says to the doctor and calls the family in the room and he says look i realize i'm about to die go get me some water if I'm going to die, I want to die tasting that good water. And they brought him the water. They said he drank at least a gallon of water and recovered. Went on to be married, lived a long, healthy life. By not following the doctor's instructions, which was in a time of dysentery, not to drink liquids when you're dehydrated. Terrible advice that, that he got there. So that happened in the Dido community in the 1850s. What happened to it? Why did it go away? Well, in 1907, the railroad had come through in 1905. Reform is along the railroad. This is a north-south rail line running through. So the election precinct was moved from Dido to Reform. And with that came everything that happens when you get a depot. The removal of businesses, uh, people locating around the depot for opportunities, economic opportunities. And when that train came through, it basically spelled the end of Dido as a viable community. But Dido is going to last from the 1830s up until about 1907 or 1908 as a very prolific part of Choctaw County history. Uh, Matter of fact, it was said that in the year 1888, this is how big it was. In 1888, the Choctaw County Musical Association met in the town of Dido for a three-day period and 600 people were in attendance. To people who don't know where that is, Dido, I mean, there's a lot of people who wouldn't even know where it is today. So that's, that's an interesting, that's kind of an interesting thing to know that that many people were there at that time. So again, that's Dido and what happened with it. All right, for the last community of this podcast before we move on to part two is Tiki Bend. We had 
Michelle Mason, Stacy Carden, and Braden Harrison all requesting uh, the origin of Tiki Ben, and I myself am incredibly interested in it. It's a personal connection to me as as I spent a large part of growing up in that area. Um, but I can't wait to, to hear the story and backstory, the origin of this name, and everything about this community as far as uh, how it came about. Chance, this is a really interesting one to me because um, I knew, I've known about Tiki Ben my whole life, but I had to ask the other day to – I knew some of this, but certainly not all of it. Why Tiki Bend, which is an unusual name? Well, we got to do a little science here because there is such a pest as the southern cattle tick. And that tick carries with it a protozoan that attaches itself to it. And when it transfers to cattle that are not used to being around this cattle tick from other regions of the country, it could cause wide-scale death in those animals. So, around the time that Tiki Bend becomes a viable community, even though it's not named that yet, even though there's starting to be people move in, the railroad is starting to ship cattle from various locations, and they ship them often live. A lot of these depots had a stockyard. So, the cattle tick is a big issue. In the year 1906, the federal government appropriated some funds to dip cattle. So what you were supposed to do in a lot of communities, they built a concrete vat and you were supposed to, in a lot of places they were not concrete, but in some of them they were. And what you were supposed to do is you were supposed to take all of your animals, cattle, horses, mules, and you were to walk them through that dip and have them actually go down in that water. The water contained a vat filled with water mixed with arsenic. And the arsenic was to kill the cattle ticks. And you were supposed to do this every 14 days during the growing season. So farmers would take their animals and do that. Now, it was a voluntary program. You can imagine the pushback from a lot of farmers. Number one, they didn't want to herd their cattle up and take them somewhere to do that. Some of them built their own vats and that sort of thing. But some of them just refused to do it. Look, I'm not planning on uh, ever trading any of my cattle. These are for my own use or whatever, and I am not going to do that. Well, it was a voluntary program for about 10 years, and then we start seeing a real uh, increase in the number of deaths of these cattle. And the governor at that time was Governor Theodore Bilbo who in 1916 saw to it that the legislature passed and he signed a compulsory law that farmers had to dip their animals. Now, you have to understand that Governor Bilbo's base, his political base, were these small independent farmers, and they felt like they'd been betrayed. But where does the name come from? Well, in that community that we call Tiki Bend was a large cattle dipping operation so farmers would bring their cattle to be dipped in this community that we still maintain today and know as Tiki Bend. Now these small farmers don't like the fact that Governor Bilbo has come up with this ruling and Governor Bilbo is going to finish his term as governor and attempt to run for the legislature but he's going to lose. And when he loses, he makes a famous statement playing off the words of a former politician. A long time ago in the late 1800s, there was a politician named William Jennings Bryan who ran against the gold standard. He was, he was for silver standard for the basis of our money. And he ran against the gold standard. And he made a famous 
made him nationally famous and world famous. He said, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Well, when Theodore Bilbo lost the election for the legislature, his famous statement was, I have been crucified on a cross of ticks. Now, that has all largely been lost to history, but we do remember the location, and we remember it as Tiki Bend, Mississippi. Real interesting story. Chance, I think that's probably a, a pretty good bit there. We only got to a couple of communities there. What, three? We did three communities. Um, I talked too much at the beginning and got sidetracked on a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, we're going to finish discussing these things, and we're going to continue with another couple of communities in Webster and Choctaw County. But we are the Grateful Historians, and we don't like to finish, except we finish on a, on a more positive note than some of the things we talk about. Let's talk about something we're grateful for. What do you got for us today? Well, today, and just to keep it on topic, I'm incredibly grateful for um, where I was raised and where I'm from, being in these small communities and that feel, that uh, sense of family and belonging in this area. Um, incredibly grateful for that. You don't get the sort of uh, sense of community and family in other places, and here you do. Um, so I'm incredible, ble- incredibly blessed to, to be from this area and happy to still be here. I think you read my mind. I grew up in northern Choctaw County, about a mile south of Matheston. So these places, Sherwood and some of these rural communities that we talk about, um, those are my people. I'm proud to be part of them. I always will be. If life ever takes me somewhere else, I will always say that I was proud to grow up in Choctaw County, that I went to school in Webster County at Matheston and at East Webster. All those places mean a tremendous amount to me. And uh, I am extremely grateful for both. And I think I'll leave it on that word. Uh, We are the Grateful Historians. Thank you for joining us.